You're listening to the Restoration Church Podcast. We are a local congregation in Lexington, Kentucky, and we would love to see you join God's restoring work of love in your life. You can find out more about us at restorationlex.com slash welcome. There's helpful links about how you can grow, how you can serve, and be good news in our city. Thanks for listening. Years ago when my uh, oldest child was a baby, we went on a vacation. It was the first vacation we went on with a baby before. It was to this place called Tybee Island. You ever been there before? Out of Savannah, Georgia. Beautiful place. And this is when we could still drop our children off at my grandparents, the grandparents' house and just get, and get away with it. Um, and they were, they were on vacation and watching the kids. And we went with my brother Andrew and your esteemed uh, sister-in-law, or my, my sister-in-law, not your sister-in-law, my sister-in-law, your children's pastor, Sheena. And we went on a tandem kayak trip into the mouth of the Savannah River that goes out into the ocean. There's this beautiful uh, lighthouse from the 1800s you can go out to on an island. It's amazing. And it was a wonderful trip. You could just, I mean, the water was clear and beautiful. Amazing place. I love Tybee Island. And we're kayaking out. We're having a great time. We're out about two hours, almost to really where the, the mouth of the river meets the ocean. And we decide, well, it's probably time. We're looking at our watches. Got to go back. I'm in one kayak with my wife, my brother and Sheena are in the other kayak. We turn around and begin to go back. And we Fail to realize that the timing of this was a little off, being that the tide was going out. Now, I don't know if you have kayaked in the mouth of something going into the ocean when the, when the, the actual tide goes out, but Lord Jesus, it was absolutely overwhelming. It's the closest I've ever seen uh, uh, divorce papers signed. It was because they were tandem kayaks. Tandem kayaks are from the devil anyway. You should have your own kayak. That's just my conviction. It was absolutely awful. It was a leisurely two hours out, but it probably took us twice that long to get back. And by the time we did, our arms no longer worked. It was sunburn everywhere. I was to the point of where I was just going to just drop in the water and, you know, Titanic style and just float down. It was absolutely awful. What took us that long, pushed against us, reminds me of that story. That story always kind of sticks with me thinking through some of the things we face in our world, things that we love and desire and see value in, but it feels like no matter how hard and how easy it used to be, sometimes when you move into certain areas of your life, move into certain seasons of your life, it feels like something's pushing against you, right? It feels like you are fighting and something that used to be easy somehow becomes so completely difficult. I think about that specifically in the church when we talk about community, because every time I preach on community, which is a lot, in seven years now, I've probably talked about community almost as much as anything else. The, the, the secret is everyone values community. No one, if I said, who in here thinks that community is a terrible idea, not no one would raise your hand, or maybe you would just to be that guy or that girl, but everyone values community. But at the same time, we inhabit a culture that pushes so hard against us, and no matter how much we push and push ourselves, it feels like there is a tide that keeps us from arriving where we need to be. And as a result of that, you know this, that we live in a very hyper-connected, but also disconnected world. We have normalized this disconnection where we kind of live in our own silos unless we're challenged to step outside of this. And because of this reality, we are 
profoundly lonely as a culture. Back in 2020, a Cigna study found that 52% of Americans said they felt lonely. That's over half of Americans. Hundreds of millions of people said they were lonely. Medical professionals consider loneliness now an epidemic, and nations like Great Britain, like Japan, have launched entire government programs to combat how lonely people are in their countries. Here in America, Vivek Murthy said in the Harvard Business Review, who used to be the former Surgeon General, he said, during my years of caring for patients, the most common pathology I saw was not heart disease or diabetes, it was loneliness. On top of this, studies have found that social isolation, which we've experienced a great deal of, obviously, in the last few years, has increased this loneliness into premature death by 14%, making this the health equivalent, your loneliness, of smoking 15 cigarettes a day and far more deadly than obesity itself. Absolutely staggering. Loneliness will kill you before cigarettes and obesity. Now, at this point, I'm supposed to stand here and tell you all of the value of community and why it will solve your problem of loneliness. But I need to be honest about something. The older I get, the more I'm convinced when I talk about community, what we're talking about when we talk about community is maybe something different, maybe something a little bit deeper. It feels like when I talk about the value of community, it feels a little like talking about the value of kitchens to a room full of hungry people. Yes, it's involved, but it's not meeting the actual need itself. Talk to anyone who has ever felt lonely and disconnected, and you can show up in a room like this on a weekly basis in a crowd and still be profoundly lonely. Even a room full of Christians doesn't always help. It's because the need isn't simply community. It's not simply finding a way to get in the same room together, we need something a little deeper than that. And what I sense is, if you look at the heart of this, of what we're actually looking for in community, it's something as simple as friends. I want to ask a very simple, but at the same time, very not simple question for us today. Do you know what it means to be a friend? Like, have you ever thought about that? Has anyone ever told you or taught you how to be a friend? And what I think what we're talking about when I bring up community, when I stand up in a room like this, is we're talking about the kind of friendships that we want and we desire. Communities like the kitchen, but, but the friendship, the friendship we're looking for, that's the meal. That's the, what's feeding our Soul. I've been in church my whole life. I can remember a thousand sermons on community. I've preached a thousand sermons on community, but I racked my brain this week. I can't remember almost anything ever being taught on how to be a friend. So while we may be good sometimes of getting people in the same room together, we, we might be good at getting people on the same page, it's a, it's, it's a whole different thing to help people actually make friends, to be friends, and to actually stay friends for the long haul over time. One of my friends here in this church, one of our elders, sent me a meme last night that said one of Jesus' greatest miracles was having 12 close friends in his 30s. <laughs> and that's profoundly 
true because the older we get right, it's easier to be in the same room, but to be truly friends with those people, to stay close to them. And I think there's some reasons for this. One, we are a Western culture. And when when we think about being close, having intimate relationships, the only real imagination we have for intimate relationships is a romantic or a sexual sort of love. And so historically in the church, you'll see a ton of teachings about marriage. And rightfully so, marriage is, is needed and important. But at the same time, other relationships that need and desire intimacy are sometimes left on the outside looking in. A couple of ways this impacts the church. Number one, single people end up feeling like second-class citizens. Amen, single people? Because the only time you get to talk about intimacy is when it's in marriage. Another way this works is that, and this is not just in the church, but men do not know how to make friendships. We do not know how to find intimacy because we ourselves have never been taught this before. Or another example, marriages suffer because the only intimate relationship we have is with our spouse. When we really truly need friendships and being known and loved by someone else. Does this track with anyone in here? No matter where we stand romantically, we rightly desire to be known and loved in relationship. We rightly desire to find intimacy in relationships with those who love us and know us, and even knowing us, love us still. And the church, it should be a place where that's possible, not just possible, But it happens on a regular basis, but it's not easy, is it? Because friendship, friendship is hard, right? Being in the same room is easy. Watching a football game together is easy. Talking about the things we have in common is easy. But friendship, actual friendship is hard. You can have a handful of vague acquaintances. That's not difficult. But to have this level of vulnerability, to have intentionality, to walk with someone even when they have let you down, to speak words to them of challenge and of comfort and of encouragement to one another, that's something more than just an acquaintance that you happen to share the same room with, right? Real friendship, it's rooted in a commitment and not in convenience. Not in just simply sharing the same space and commonalities, but a commitment to one another in the same way that we commit to one another in marriage, in a different way. It requires forgiving. It requires being forgiven. It requires in that love that we actually put down roots with one another. And it's why over and over and over again in the, in the New Testament specifically, it talks about how love isn't connected to a feeling that comes and goes. Love is something that we do, it says, with one another. The Bible talks about one another over and over and over again. And marriages were not the only relationships that were being written to here in the New Testament in these churches. There were relationships where this love took root, this intimacy took root together in deep abiding friendship. One another is a word that appears over 100 times in the New Testament. I say a word because in the Greek it is one word. Elelon, elelon, try that out. 
It's a reciprocal pronoun that pushes action outside of ourselves. It appears 100 times. Just a few examples I'm sure you've heard before. Be at peace with one another. Serve one another. Be devoted to one another. Accept one another. Pray for one another. Encourage and build up one another. Speak truth to one another. Forgive one another. Be hospitable to one another over and over and over again. When your faith is presented in the New Testament, it's talking about something that's not a compartmentalized doctrine that affects you only on the inside. It is a deeply relational, connected environment where love takes root, not just on your own as you feel it, but in the messiness of relationship with one another. And probably my favorite one another that we see comes from Colossians chapter 3. We're going to look at this on the screen here. It says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, with kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Now that phrase there, bear with each other, is important. Another Greek word, anekamai, it it means to stand firm and to bear a weight. Now a house, like our house right now, that when you renovate it or when you build a home, there are two types of walls. There are walls that simply separate space, and there are walls that do more than separate space. They are called load-bearing walls. This week, we had to figure out how to take this piece of pantry out of our kitchen, and before we could do that, the dude had to go up and look and make sure that if we didn't tear out this wall, the entire house would fall down. Because... We have to pay attention to what bears the weight in our home. Luckily, it was not a load-bearing wall, and that thing is gone now. But when we look through our home, every decision was based upon, can this bear the weight of the structure? What Paul is speaking, the literal translation of what he's showing us here is that love in one another's senses, comes in bearing the weight of our lives, bearing the weight of our stories. And that when we choose to step into loving relationships in the church, what we choose to step into is bearing the weight of what we face in one another's stories, right? And I'm so glad that my story is not just borne by myself because I cannot handle it on my own, right? You cannot handle it on your own. There are people that the Lord has laid in your life, in my life, who hold us up. Bear that weight when we cannot any longer. And this is the picture that Paul is giving us in these verses. That Christ is a foundation for us. And on that foundation, the church is built not just as a structure that we sit within, but we ourselves are God's building, as the New Testament says, bearing that weight in one another's lives in loving, faithful patience together. Restoration, I hope you know that I've seen this happen here in many ways. Lord, in the past couple of months as we've been out of our home, I've seen it a thousand different ways. But I also know that as we seek this and see the value in this kind of love for one another, this kind of friendship, the biggest barrier we face, you and I, every single time we talk about friendship and community, is time. Always 
always time. My wife, uh, she, she sent me this lecture series this past week called The Science of Friendship. It's absolutely phenomenal. It's by this man named Kyler Shumway. He's a psychologist and points out so many different things about the neuroscience of connection and relationships. But one of the things that stuck out to me is this study he points to in 2019 that talks about how these sort of relationships that we desire don't happen overnight. Here on the screen, it says it takes 30 hours together to move from being acquaintances to casual friends. It takes 50 hours to move from a casual friendship to a real deep friendship. It takes 140 hours to then move from a good, deeper friendship to, for a good friendship to a deeper friendship, and then 300 hours to become deep, intimate friends. Now, at first, I was thinking, that seems excessive to me. I've gotten close to people before, maybe faster, but then the more I thought about it, the people that are with me, like really with me, are the people who've been there hour after hour after hour. And I remember that the things in my faith and the things in your faith and our journeys that actually matter, the things that hold weight in our lives, they take there is no instant gratification in spiritual formation. There is only the weight of day by day, step by step, faithfulness that we see. Deep friendship takes time. Deep friendship in the church takes time. Community takes time. It's why I believe when Paul is describing in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 what love is like, he begins intentionally by saying love is what? Patient. The first description of love you are given in 1 Corinthians 13, which, by the way, is not a marriage passage, right? It's read at every, I know, at every marriage ceremony there is, but it's not about marriage. It's about the kind of relationships that happen, whether you're married or not, in the church. It says love is patient first because the kind of love that we're building and we're hoping to build together as God's people takes holy time. And that kind of love, the kind of love that bears weight, the kind of love that goes through ups and downs with one another, the kind of love that sees us in our messiness and in our sin and still shows up, that love, Paul says, is patient. And right after Paul tells us there to bear with one another, he gives another one another, another one another that I think is just as necessary within this. He says, forgive one another. I think most of you know that church is often a, a quite messy place to be around Others, the closer you get to people, the more messy and screwed up you see them to be. You find out as you walk into a church that these people are just as messy as everyone else is. And then what am I to do with that kind of information? Paul assumes in this passage that you're going to have to forgive. He assumes that in bearing the weight of one another's lives, in choosing to step into loving relationships, that forgiveness is going to have to be a necessity. Because as the saying goes, hurt people do what? Hurt people. And you know what those hurt people do? They hurt people. Now, I understand a lot of people in this room 
have experienced hurt at the hands of church people and at the hands of the church. I have too. I have, listen, my heart has been torn in pieces in the church. On more than one occasion, I have experienced deep pain at the hands of people who have claimed the name of Jesus. And so I don't stand up here without the scars to be able to say what I'm saying today. I know and I feel what many of you have felt, but the reason I'm still here, the reason I'm still hopeful is because even though I know how messy relationships are, I've seen what the gospel can do in forgiveness and reconciliation. I've seen broken relationships become whole. And I've seen even broken relationships that don't mend in the way we think become testimonies of how God is still at work through forgiveness and reconciliation. I've seen people who have been wronged greatly who have an incredible weight of freedom in their lives because their testimony is, in spite of what's happened to me, in spite of what's been done to me, I have freedom in Jesus' name, a testimony that what has meant for evil in my life has been turned to good, even without what we might describe as reconciliation, what reconciled was in them to God in his will in their life. And it's beautiful. I'm standing here today, not broken down and out of the church and starting some kind of blog and podcast somewhere because I've seen forgiveness and reconciliation and wholeness in Jesus, right? I've seen it happen. I've been the recipient of it. I've been the one who's both forgiven. And listen, many times, ask a lot of people here have needed forgiveness. And that's just this week. And the reason why, thank you, Michael, I will talk about it. The reason why... I can stand and say forgiveness is not because I've had the strength to either forgive or be forgiven. I don't. Listen, when you're in that space, it feels impossible to forgive. That's why Paul ends with forgive as the Lord forgave you. That statement is not a guilt trip of, well, look what Jesus did. Why can't you? That's not what Paul is saying. He's saying, you have the weight of what happened on the cross behind you. You have the wholeness of the forgiveness you have received as a resource to bring you towards the forgiveness that you are seeking yourself. He says, forgive as the Lord forgave you, not because it's easy, not because he's forcing you to, because as you give your lives to what the cross has done for you, you see something begin to bubble up that you could not do on your own. The cross and the empty tomb is the reason why forgiveness is even possible in a community like this. And we have to keep going back to it over and over again. Because as we experience the messiness of what you and I do in our lives, that forgiveness keeps coming back. But the cross is not a zero-sum game. The cross always has enough for what we need in our places of forgiveness. And as we do that, we find reconciliation in beautiful ways. David Fitch writes this. He says, Reconciliation is so central to the good news of what God has done in Christ that to see no reconciliation in our churches suggests that there's no gospel in them. Reconciliation marks our presence in the world. When Jesus says, you'll know they're Christians by their love, 
What he's saying is that the way we love one another through some messiness and weariness and hurt, the way that forgiveness and reconciliation holds us together is such a testimony to the world around us that we stand out, that we look different more than our services and the songs and the sermons and the content. What makes us stand out in this world is love for one another that bears a weight in our lives. You know, I'd be remiss as we talk about this to not talk about how we try to bring this about in community here in our church. Now, is this something that some of you are already in? Yes, but I want to just share briefly how we try to create an environment where these kind of Jesus-shaped friendships are even possible. There's four distinct expressions of community here in the church. First, when you see here on the screen, is one-time events. These are things like the chicken wing championship. There are things like the chili cook-off, the things we do in the parks. Lots of different events that we do with one purpose and one purpose only. Create an environment that's not like this, where relationships can be built, where friendships can begin, where that becomes possible. I'm so grateful for our Welcome Wagon folks who monthly make these family meals an opportunity where you can baby step out and meet people and hope to build the kind of relationships that deepen there. The second kind of community that we have is community groups you see here on the screen. This is a group of about 8 to 12 people that meet twice a month at least, usually in homes, gather around a meal, conversations, and prayers. We have two, two community groups right now. We have one new community group that we're going to announce next week. We're excited that's going to be starting. I'm very excited about that for some of our empty nesters and more seasoned folks. Um, there's really no fun way to say that. Some seasoned vets, the veterans. All right, that's going to be starting up next week. You're going to hear more information about that. I'm super, super pumped about that as well. And we want to see more community groups start here in our church as well to be able to create that opportunity. Third, we have something called short-term groups. We had these meeting this morning, the Bible for Grown-Ups. Uh, we have the Making of, of Biblical Womanhood, which is a phenomenal book that, yes, I would encourage men to read as well, uh, that Jessica is going to be leading. And all year long, what we're trying to do is create these environments on Sunday mornings and out during the week where you can come and learn easy steps to build relationships and grow together. Uh, Short-term groups have been one of the biggest successes that we have had in our church over the last couple of years. Third, DNA groups. DNA groups are smaller, about two to five people, usually the same gender. These are groups that are focused not so much like community groups on just conversation. They're focused more on personal, intentional discipleship, getting into the mud and the mess of our spiritual journeys. These groups ideally meet at least twice a month as well, uh, and there's potential of these DNA groups to grow even more from that and to multiply. We want to see if this happen as well. More DNA groups in our church. So if you're interested in any of these forms that we've talked about today, if you're interested in being a part of one, more interestingly, I think, are you interested in leading one? I think there are leaders in this room right now that God's stirring in your heart to lead some form or fashion of community or stirring to say, I want to take a step out and try to risk relationships that can deepen here in this community. And so that's what I challenge you to do today. Challenge you to respond in those ways that the Lord is speaking here in these deep relationships. I wish I could talk for the rest of the day. There's so much I could say about the value of what the Lord is doing in friendship. He calls us no longer servants. He says, I now call you friends. 
because we have that deepened relationship with him. As we move into a time of response, I just encourage you to, to ask the Lord what he's speaking to you about what maybe your next step might be in community. If you're just interested, grab one of those cards out in the lobby out there. Grab one, fill it out, put it in, say, I'm interested in the community. Come talk to me. Come talk to Hannah. Come talk to Jessica. We would love to find a way to get you into these forms of community where those kind of relationships can be. We're about to celebrate communion. Jesus says one of the most challenging things in the scriptures around communion. He says, as you're going to the altar, if you have anyone who has anything against you, go to them first. I hate that he said that. It's really, really inconvenient. But Jesus so values our reconciliation that he says that is your mark in the world even in worship as you celebrate communion together so i would encourage you to respond today in a couple different ways celebrate in communion remember that you've been reconciled to christ and reconciled to one another in him but maybe today you need prayer about a relationship you feel is broken maybe today you need to go pray with someone. You need to go talk to someone. You may, maybe you need to go apologize. I don't know where you are in your journey. Maybe you need to text somebody even right now and say, listen, I, I, I'm sorry. Whatever the Lord's speaking, respond to what he's doing today. Don't walk out of here just hearing information and going on with your life. Respond to what the Lord is doing in the here and now. Father, I'm so, so, so grateful that I get to be a part of a, this messy, beautiful family called the church. And we are so far from perfect. This community, this specific local church is so far from perfect. But in these imperfections, we see your light shine through. I thank you for the ways that I have been loved in this community. And I thank you for the ways that in our coming days and months and years, people are going to find deep, abiding friendships. Would you teach us to love Jesus like you? Would you teach us to love with patience when it feels hard? Lord Jesus, would you help us to continue to move forward, to bear that weight with one another? God, open doors for community in this church. I pray that those who are just right on the edge thinking, maybe I need to step out. Lord, give them courage in this. Give them courage in this. We respond to what you've done for us on the cross. Lord, you have forgiven us of our sin, and we want to be a forgiving, reconciling people in the same way in this community. Would you make us like you in that? I pray this in Jesus' name.